0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. Before I jump into a quick breakdown of the topic we'll be covering this week, I wanted to let you know that applications just opened up for Acton University 2020. Acton University is Acton's largest annual conference, and this year it takes place June 16 through 19. Now, if you're anything like me, maybe when you hear the word conference, you hesitate a bit. A lot of conferences tend to consist of the same things. They tend to be echo chambers for groupthink, and a lot of people go just to add professional contacts to their roster. And that's why I love Acton University, because it's not like that. And I'm not just saying this because I work at Acton. The first time I attended Acton University, I was in college and was pursuing an English major. And while I loved studying literature, there were still some tools in my tool belt that I needed for life. For instance, how to think clearly about economics. And that's what Acton University provided me with. And not only did Acton University help me understand how to think economically, but it taught me how to do so within the context of understanding who the human person is— The course lecturers help me connect the dots to address questions like, does economics and religious liberty have anything to do with each other? And how does someone's view of the human person affect the way they approach governance and economics? There are classes both at the 101 level and for people who feel like they already have a good grasp on this stuff, on understanding both economics and what their faith has to do with it. Acton University features over 100 courses, over 50 distinguished speakers, and over 1,000 participants, who, by the way, represented over 80 countries last year. You can learn more and apply today at university.acton.org. Now back to the episode. Last Wednesday, February 5th, Pope Francis spoke to a crowd that had gathered together for a seminar on New Forms of Solidarity, which was an event organized by the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. During his speech, the Pope addressed the economy, human nature, and taxes, and he also called for wealth redistribution in order to alleviate poverty. The world is rich, and yet the poor increase around us, he said. Quote, if extreme poverty exists in the midst of wealth— It is because we have allowed the gap to widen to become the largest in history, unquote. The Pope says this is a fact, that the poor have only grown poorer while the rich continue to get richer. But is this really true? And what is the best way to alleviate poverty? Acton's president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico, comes on to the podcast to help answer these questions.
1: Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Father Robert Sirico, President and Co-Founder of the Acton Institute. We'll be discussing some recent remarks Pope Francis delivered at a seminar on New Forms of Solidarity, organized by the Pontifical Academy of Social Communications. The Pope's remarks were short but wide-ranging, touching on issues of wealth and poverty, justice and taxation, banking and finance— sin and solidarity. The talk made headlines worldwide, characterizing it as the Pope's case for wealth redistribution. Father Robert, welcome to Acton Of course, it's always great to be back. Thank you. Now, Pope Francis has a knack for making headlines. Um, is there something about the papacy as an institution, this Pope in particular, or perhaps just the nature of the media today that fuels this sort
2: of interest? Well, I think it's a combination of several factors. First is the, the reality of the papacy. I mean, it's the longest ongoing institution on the planet. And so naturally, that institution will have accumulated uh, experience from various ages. And it has a venerable tradition and a very rich intellectual and cultural history. So, of course, when the pope speaks, there's going to be some attention paid to that. I think when you combine that to this particular personality, that is Francis Jorge Bergoglio from Argentina, uh, and the way he speaks, uh, they say in Italian, abraccio off the cuff, Mm -hmm. right from the arm, so to speak, uh, you're going to get I mean they're they're certainly going to pay a lot of attention just because he's there in the middle of a conference which is itself uh, begging for attention. Not the least of which because of who is participating. I find it very curious that uh, Jeffrey Sachs, no friend of Catholic moral teaching on marriage or life or child rearing and things like this, why he constantly has been—and I I think it has to do with who is the— the provost of the—or the chancellor of the Pontifical uh, Academy of Science and Social Science, um, Marcel Sanchez, who is himself an Argentinian, And I have to say, um, not a cautious speaker. (laughs) He's the one who compared uh, China or who said that China was the exemplar of Catholic social teaching. It's uh, really ridiculous. So you have this combination of of combustibles (laughs) that produce attention, of course.
1: Yeah, and and these remarks are delivered – you know, to all sorts of—there were leaders of finance and economic policy specialists. And he he begins the talk in a very striking way where he says, "Um, I would like to start with a fact. The world is rich and yet the poor are growing around us. Uh, And then later in the talk, he observes, quote, if extreme poverty exists in the midst of extreme wealth, it is because we have allowed the gap to widen, to become the largest in history, unquote. Would it be fair to describe the world as rich and the numbers of people in poverty rising? And is the gap between the rich and the poor a growing one?
2: Well, I think we have to take these things uh, piece by piece because they are um, very important contentions that need to be looked at. So let's look at the first uh, contention here, namely that it's, it's interesting his wording is that The world is rich and the poor are growing around us. You know, in one sense, and this is going to strike people as um, somewhat um, direct and and perhaps controversial. In a sense, it's it's correct to say the world is rich and the poor are growing around us. I don't see that as a negative. I I think the alternative— to the poor growing around us is having less poor people, not by virtue of them being made better off economically, but by virtue of them not even surviving childbirth. The fact that there are larger numbers of people, the very existence of more human beings on the planet is an indication that something's going right, that human life is being supported, sustained, uh, perpetuated. And so, yes, there, there are poor people, and there needs to be a remedy to that, and he, he uh, says something to that effect later. But the very existence of people who would have not existed, who would have died, is itself a positive thing. Now, there's another contention that, that he uh, makes, and it's um, he uses the language very cautiously, but the impression you get is that he's saying that Uh, the gap between the rich and the poor is poverty. That is, the very existence of a gap is the proof that poverty itself is growing. Not just that there are more poor people, but that the poor themselves are getting poorer. And that is not true. Uh, By every analysis we have, by all of the international institutions that analyze um, wealth creation and poverty, we see that the poor are better off now than they were 10 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. The the question now is what causes that? And if we can get to the answer to that, then we can get to the answer – of the solution to poverty, which is a subject that he brings up a little bit later in his speech.
1: Yeah, I mean it's um, it's interesting to note, and and part of this is is these are things that are widely reported in the media, um, but as as a matter of empirical fact, absolute numbers of people in poverty are declining and have been declining right. for generations
2: because they're getting wealthier.
1: Yep. Yeah. And and the other fact is is at least globally now part of this is is you know with a first world experience we've seen you know marginal rises in income inequality in let's say the United States but if you take the world as a whole that gap is actually decreasing yes. um, and and these are these are empirical questions which right not which, doctrinal questions yeah which are not doctrinal questions and that's and that's not um, you know that's not the main meat of the talk, but I think that's a, that's important for setting, setting the context. Um, the Pope's—Pope Francis is obviously very concerned about the world's poor, um, and he warns that, um, you know, there's a sense that people can have of despair, um, and that it's not—that's not an appropriate response to this need, saying, quote, the main message of hope I want to share with you is precisely this: these are solvable problems, and not the product of a lack of resources. "Unquote." Um, what What is successful solutions to poverty look like, both both at an individual level and 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 as a society?
2: Well, I mean, the most elementary logic tells us that when there is a lack of things, in order to resolve. Resolve the lack of things. That's what poverty is. We need to create the conditions for the production of things. Uh, That is more wealth. And so what produces wealth? Let's be very clear. And and I think you're going to come to it a little bit later because he offers uh, a number of uh, public policies or at least he identifies a number of public policies or situations whereby he says this creates Uh, the gap and it creates poverty Mm -hmm. and he's about half right in his analysis so if you want to go through that quotation i know you're going to cite oh yeah uh, maybe we can take that apart piece by piece
1: absolutely um the pope calls our attention to several public policies and business practices which he believes are rooted in 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 what he calls the structures of sin Uh, And he's concerned about uh, what he calls uh, repeated tax cuts for the wealthiest people, tax havens, corporate corruption, crony capitalism, oppressive levels of taxation on the poor, uh, cuts in social services, unsustainable levels of public debt, and war. Um, Are each of these indicative of, of, of the structures of sin or are there important distinctions that need
2: to be drawn Well, there are obviously important distinctions that need to be drawn. I mean, it is not the same uh, to say that um, corporate corruption is the same as corporations, Mm -hmm. that that, uh, what corporate corruption is, is an abuse of the very reason for the existence of a corporation. The, the legal reason for it. So in this laundry list, you have several things that in fact are the causes of poverty, in part uh, the corporate corruption I've already mentioned, crony capitalism, which is not capitalism as such. Mm-hmm. It's uh, friendships and nepotism, uh, oppressive levels of taxation, and he says on the poor, and I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Why do excessive levels of taxation hurt the poor? Because it prevents the poor from being creative. And let's also remember that another uh, form of taxation, if you will, that has the same effect anyway as taxation, is regulation. So this impedes the ability of the poor to sustain themselves. This also should apply to the rich, And especially to the rich because the rich own the means of production and the means of production are precisely what employ the poor. Not only the means of production but also the investments. All of the investments that go into what? They don't just go into boats and houses and and jewelry and all the rest of it. They go into businesses and that's what's employing people. So the taxes on businesses – have the same economic effect as the taxes on the poor. That is, they repress the creative engine of people who are working or of businesses that are functioning. So what you don't want to do is what the Pope is basically calling for in this speech, is having an increased amount of taxation on these companies that employ the poor. Uh, I would also say that... um, uh, unsustainable public debt. That's, that's exactly the kind of thing you don't want to have in a society. But uh, public debt is the result of excessive public programs. And uh, yet in the, the very sentence or the phrase that he uses right before that, he, he decries cuts in social services. Uh, social services aren't the normative way in which people get their needs met. That's the exception. That's when there's failure in an economy. What you want to do is not offer social services. You'd rather have people who can supply for themselves, who don't have to appeal to the state and to politicians for their support. And the way you do that, again, is by minimizing the interference with the creativity of business. Uh, So this is such a a mixed bag of things, and it it really— uh, Evidences to me, uh, confusion on the empirical level, a confusion on the um, uh, the level of economics.
1: Yeah. Now. Pope Francis invokes the language of Pope St. John Paul II calling our attention when when he talks about these things. He he talks about them in terms of the structures of sin, Um, and and this is something from Pope John Paul II's social encyclical uh, on social concern, Um, and he describes these structures as taking root whenever the common good is reduced to the good of, of, of merely one sector of life or one sphere of society. Uh, He believes the economy and finance are often fall prey to
2: this, becoming ends in in themselves. Is is this a concern that you share? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, uh, I think the one nuance that's missing from this is that St. John Paul II was very clear in in making a distinction between the structures of sin and the relationship of personal sin to the structures of sin. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an abstraction Sin has to be a personal rebellion against the law of God. So structures don't sin in that sense. Structures may perpetuate. They may be the occasion for sins, but they don't sin in themselves. So it's just a theological thing that needs to be underscored. But yes, especially in the conditions of a large state that captures uh, the... um, interest and the friendship of businesses, that businesses find it more difficult to function without having friends in the political sphere, you have these distortions that I kind of touched on a little bit ago. And these are the things that distort uh, all of the economic signals that make for economic productivity. Uh, whether it's wages or the costs of goods and services uh, and the, the basic uh, rise in well being on the part of people. That's the common good. The common good isn't a kind of socialist utopia. Uh, it's a set of conditions, a set of preconditions or benchmarks that indicate the society is functioning well because it's functioning in a moral sense, with a moral sensibility, and also economically.
1: Yeah, but also in a, in, a, in a in a sense in a sense beyond economics and yes. economics is is one of those essential parts of what makes the realization of the common good possible. It is. But it's not it's not sufficient for no, the No, it's not
2: sufficient. Uh, you can have somebody well-fed. Uh you know it's it's like the stories we've all heard of the children who were in orphanages who were found to be in orphanages in uh, Uh, Central Europe under communism, they were fed, they had medical care, they had warmth. Uh, They actually sometimes would tie bottles to the cribs and the children could drink out of the bottles. But what they didn't have was love and attention and holding and cuddling and uh, especially uh, looking Mm -hmm. at a person who was taking care of them. And without that personal dimension, even though they had everything physically, these children come out uh, with great challenges throughout their lives. Their brains don't develop well. They're bonding with other people, even as they're adults, uh, don't function well. Some of them become sociopaths. Um, so it is true that if you think that all that's needed is the economy, then you're you're missing because the economic reality is only one dimension of the total human reality. Sometimes things that can't be purchased on on a market, such as love,
1: and and some things that can't even be realized politically in other ways. Right. I mean, I think that story is very illustrative. Um, that sort of free giving and receiving that comes from parents to children, right. that comes through bounds of friendship, is is something that. that that can't be realized other than than us embracing our own responsibility.
2: Exactly, and our obligations to other people who are in need. Now, Pope
1: Francis calls us to solidarity in the face of of these economic challenges we face in building a just society. What should that look like in our everyday lives, in our our own vocations, in our own
2: uh, spheres of responsibility in the world? Well, of course, a great biblical image of solidarity I always think of is the um, the Good Samaritan. You know, he comes upon a man who is in great need, and by his own decision, by his own sacrifice, uh, he tends to that man's needs and ensures that what the man will need during his, people of, uh, d- during his period of incapacitation incapac- would be met. This is a human act of solidarity. Notice that it's not political. It's social. And I think while there is place for the political, that is not the first place. It should not be the primary place. It should not be the thing that we turn to first. We should allow opportunities for people to act as neighbors to those in need, to use the phrase that St. John Paul II uses— when he's describing the principle of subsidiarity. Um, And I think this is the real solidarity. It's not just expressed and not even primarily expressed through structures, through institutions, through abstractions, much less through politics, but it's expressed on local levels where people act on behalf of other people. Now, in order to accomplish that, you need two things. Uh, you need the resources to do it. People themselves, uh, the Good Samaritan himself, was it Margaret Thatcher's great phrase? You know, we wouldn't remember the Good Samaritan if all he had were good intentions. He also had money. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, if, if he himself, who was a businessman, evidently he was going to to trade, he had enough resources to be able to share with this man. But it's not just that. Uh, it's also the moral formation, and this is especially the case with uh, young people, to teach young people early on this notion of solidarity, this notion of empathy. Solidarity meaning the recognition of ourself in another person. So when a person's in dire need, we recognize that that, that is us. That is our only—there but for the grace of God go I, and then we act upon that. So you need both the moral formation of solidarity and the economic formation of prosperity. One of my favorite quotes of Lord Acton, where he
1: talks about Differing notions of freedom between, um, you know, modern conceptions and that and that of, of of the church, and he talks about the church's conception of freedom being that of a of a society beyond the state mm-hmm. and of individual souls above it. Um, and I think that gets to the root of of one of the distinctions that you were trying to make earlier in the writings of uh, of. Uh, Pope St. John Paul II. Um, in his encyclical um, that Pope Francis references, uh, the social concern, he, he talks about the, social, the uh, structures of sin, but he, but he, he makes note of, and this is, this is from paragraph 36, he talks about that the structures of sin, quote, are rooted in personal sin mm-hmm. and thus always linked to the concrete acts of individuals who introduce these structures, consolidate them, and make them difficult to remove. And thus they go stronger, spread, and become the source of other sins. And so influence people's behavior. Exactly. So the way to turn that around, is there a similar sort of virtuous cycle?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's um, called—well, I mean, um, of course, Aquinas describes it as the habituation of virtue, that we first look to a virtuous person— and then emulate that, and then we practice on a regular basis acts of virtue, the end of which, the end of that process is that we ourselves become virtuous. So the very habituation of virtue, or the habituation of practicing acts of virtue, make us virtue Virtuous, not because we're deciding every time to be virtuous, but because we it's become a habit, it's become a culture. Mm-hmm. In order to do this, and this is what is of great concern to me, in order to do this, we have to have institutions and cultures in society that allow people to be challenged on a moral level, allow people to be formed. But as long as we're simultaneously advocating a more and more expansive welfare state or social assistance state or structures that prohibit people mm-hmm. from challenging morally other people, who from acting uh, morally, uh, we're going to weaken that moral fabric and that moral enculturation. Um, you quoted Acton. I'm thinking of a quotation from... Tocqueville, which I won't get exact, but he says, um, how will we escape if at the same time that we relax the uh, political grasp, Mm -hmm. we don't increase the moral? If the moral grasp in society is not strengthened in proportion to the political being weakened— then society itself, he says, will not be able to escape such a destruction.
1: Now, there's there's a way in which that's scary, The um, way in which we see growing state power and, and 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 see the weakening of social institutions, business, community life.
2: But there's also well, a way— All of which can be morally formative, yes. by the way. Not <laughs> yeah. just economically productive. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's also
1: encouraging— in that by acting virtuous by 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 putting our time and our energies into those institutions into doing the right thing that that itself works in a way to strengthen that social power and 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 is is a bizarre. I mean, we don't, you know, when we think about struggling for social justice, we think about you know standing at picket lines or demonstrating or, or voting a particular way. But when we do our duty in the world, when we're when we're true to ourselves and true to our callings, um, we bring that reign of justice with us. Yeah.
2: You know, uh, the Pope emphasizes the importance of hope, of not despairing and here's the one element of this that i think uh, we should just always recall that a life of virtue a culture of life is potent that that christianity destabilized the roman empire by virtue of Christians living their lives in front of other people, even sometimes under great persecution. Even when their property was taken, their lives were taken. The constant living of that life of virtue in front of other people eventually destabilized the Roman Empire because people saw this was a better way to live than the way they were living.
1: That's an inspiring note to end on. Thank you so much uh, for being with us, Father Robert. Thank you. Always great to be here.
0: As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616-454-3080. And if you like our show, you know what to do. Leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe. Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.